0: Did you know that 70% of all books are sold online via e-commerce? If you're an author wondering how you can get some of that market share, this is for you. Hi, I'm your co-host, Carly Waters, and I'm here to tell you how writers can work on their author brand to build an audience and convert those followers into book buyers. Everything that will change the course of your writing career, go to CarlyWaters.com/slash course to learn more and use discount code pod15 for the month of April at checkout. That's pod pod15 at checkout over at carlywaters.com slash course.
1: Hi everyone, this is Cece. If you're a fan of books with hooks, then you've probably heard me use the term interiority. I often catch myself saying things like, These pages need more interiority, or The interiority here needs work, and that's because interiority is a super important element of storytelling. It's what makes books unique. But as it turns out, a lot of you have questions about what exactly is interiority and how to properly weave it into stories, which is why I'm teaching my popular writing interiority class in a new two-day format. We'll meet on Thursday, June 6th at 8 p.m. via Zoom to cover all things interiority, including the difference between interiority and emotions, how interiority is different from telling, how to leverage interiority into plot points, how to strike a balance between interiority and mystery, and more. And then we'll meet again for a live cozy Q&A session on Monday, June 10th also at 8pm via Zoom, in which you'll have the opportunity to turn your camera on if you choose. If you're interested, check out the link in my bio on Instagram, and I hope to see you there.
2: Hi there, and welcome to our show, The Shit No One Tells You About Writing. I'm Bianca Murray and I'm joined by Carly Waters, and Cece Lira from PS Literary Agency. We'll be kicking off today's episode with our usual Books with Hooks segment, after which we'll go to today's guest. Have
0: you started thinking about your summer goals? Are you hoping for some accountability to help you stay motivated through the summer heat? Join Author Accelerator in the hashtag AmWritingPodcast for a free weekly writing challenge. The 2022 Summer Blueprint Button the Chair Challenge will include 10 episodes hosted by certified book coaches, Jenny Nash and KJ Delantonia. In each episode, Jenny and KJ will give you an actionable step to take to further along your manuscript or revision. You can also sign up for weekly reminder emails to help you stay on track. Each episode will include interviews with other experts across the publishing industry about their writing journeys, all to keep you inspired, motivated, and ready to write all summer long. Learn more and sign up for the challenge by visiting authoraccelerator.com writing. That's authoraccelerator.com writing welcome everyone to the episode entitled books with hooks our favorite segment we are so so thrilled to have authors with us today today we are welcoming caroline and caroline is here to tell us about her book and read her query so caroline i will turn it over to you
3: okay here goes Dear Bianca, Carly, and Cece, if I'm ever found unconscious in my local park, my obsession with your podcast will be to blame. I walk my lab puppy while listening to the podcast. And when I hear an especially inspiring piece of advice, type the information in my notes app, ignoring where we're walking. So far, my dog has run me into a fence, a ditch, and countless tree branches. I may not survive. In any case, I would like to submit Vanilla Camilla for your consideration. It's an 83,000-word romantic comedy, and for our heroine, Campbell Cam Thompson, it's the nickname she despises, although I'm pretty sure she'd love the book. It combines the identity swap of the parent trap with the workplace romance of the hating game. Cam was first called vanilla Camilla a decade ago because she and her flamboyant college roommate Camilla look like carbon copies. But Cam is the boring, practical version. Insulting nickname aside, the two have used their doppelganger appearance to switch places everywhere from traffic court to bad first dates. But this time is different. This time, their identity swap on the island of Vieques, Puerto Rico, has given Cam everything she's ever wanted. Her dream job running a hotel boutique, a budding fashion line, and maybe love. Too bad it's all based on a big, fat lie. She's not Camilla King, impetuous hotel heiress. She's Campbell Thompson, the cautious sidekick who always has a backup plan. Just not this time. In her guise as the boss's daughter, Cam and her coworker Marcos Flores, are thrown together to prepare the hotel's theme for the Virgin Del Carmen Festival, squabbling and sparking their way through a series of romantic adventures, from horseback riding to boating to floating on a bioluminescent bay. Her identity swap wasn't such a problem when Cam thought her co-worker was an uptight jerk, but now that she knows the real Marcos, the kind, funny, sexy one, she knows that he could never love a liar." When she is forced to admit her con, Marcos swears off Cam and Camilla's father swears he will disinherit his daughter. But Cam discovers a much bigger lie, a secret plot to wreck the hotel and lure the staff to an abandoned bombing range for the party of the year. Cam will have to convince Marcos and everyone she's deceived to believe in her again or risk losing the hotel and possibly their lives. I wrote this book as a love letter to the people and places of Yekes, from its wild horses to the glowing Mosquito Bay, with a nod to the island's dangerous history as a bombing range for the U.S. Navy. This is the first of two planned books. The second, the Campbell Preamble, tells the story of Camilla masquerading as Cam while she chases love around the Middle Eastern island of Bahrain. This is my first novel after a lifetime of reporting from natural disasters, war zones, and Capitol Hill. I now work part-time as a TV news reporter and full-time as a mom and marine wife. I've ghostwritten eight romance books, two that are sweet and six that are spicy. Vanilla Camilla falls right in the saucy middle. Thank you for your time, Caroline. Thank you.
0: Thank you so much, Caroline. First of all, this opening is so cute. We're so glad that you listen to us while you walk. So many people listen while they walk. So we have such a good community there. And I love the title. Vanilla Camilla is just like absolutely adorable, catchy, memorable, which is so important with a title. Memorability is like the most important thing. So I absolutely loved, loved the title. With the, okay, so now to the comps. So. I think with The Parent Trap, it feels a bit dated for me because I was kind of going through and thinking of other comps for you. Have you read The Holiday Swap? That one is two twins and they switch places one is that's like a bakery thing where it's like one's a baker in a small town one's like a tv chef and like then they switch places so I would probably be using the holiday swap as a comp and the other thing is I would also be using the holiday swap cover copy as a model for for how you should probably lay this out they're dual POV I get the sense that you're just single POV but you can correct me correct me if I'm wrong that one's dual POV but um but I think that will kind of that will help you kind of fairly this out because you know the, the the kind of the hook of that one says a feel-good holiday themed romantic comedy about identical twins who switch lives in the days leading up to christmas Again, yours aren't twins. Yours isn't Christmas, right? But we can kind of use that as a kind of backdrop. So yours would be something like another comp I was thinking was Jane the Virgin, because that's a hotel in Miami. And there's that that love story element there as well. So I thought romantic comedy for fans of Jane the Virgin in the holiday swap look like roommates switch lives running a boutique hotel or something like that, or hotel boutique. And I mixed up my words there, you know? So just use, I, you know, whenever we can find templates that exist in the world, we can reuse them and remodel them for ourselves. So that would be something where, you know, let that kind of be your guide. So, so now I'm kind of coming back to our two to our two Camillas, and I also think that will kind of help explain that these two are roommates and they're both named Camilla. Because you don't actually anywhere kind of flat out say these are two people named Camilla, really. I didn't like you. You kind of allude to it, but never you don't like spell it out anywhere. So I would just make sure that's that's super clear. But the other thing is, so you get this. Cam is the boring practical version. And whenever you call your character boring, I I think, well, why why is it that you want us, the reader, to follow along on this character's journey if you're calling her boring, right? So I would try to find another way to kind of find some redeeming qualities. And I know you're just trying to compare and contrast them. Obviously, I I get that. But for the sake of the pitch, just try to figure out a little bit more energetic way to to describe her to kind of really get our attention there. All right. So the formatting here. So you have a pretty long query letter in terms of like there's a lot of line breaks, paragraph breaks and that sort of thing. There's a couple reasons why I I think we should just like pull this all into one one paragraph. One of them is your formatting is probably going to get messed up at some point, right? Because it looks so neat and tidy in a Word doc. And then you have to like put it in an email. Formatting can get so wonky with email. So you're not going to want to do indentation. You're going to want to like keep it flat, you know, the line without that, that indentation, keep it all flat because it's, it'll just be so much cleaner when you're copying, pasting and and prepping everything for the actual submissions. Again, it looks tidy in Word, but it can get messy there. And overall, it's just, it's just too long. I made a number of notes, you know, you'll, you'll get my notes here, but like what, what I think we can kind of cut, you know, the extra stuff like horseback riding to boating to floating on a biolumescent bay, all lovely, but just like, I just don't think we need it in the query letter. I think what we really need to focus on is the identity swap, Why her? Why this character? Why we're following her and not the other one and not the other Camilla? And what I really think shines in this query letter is how jam-packed this third act is because you have this whole like, you know, the con and then she has to, once she's kind of, everything's been revealed, then she has to go back and then convince everybody about, you know, why to get on board with her. So I think your third act is so rich and I think that's one of the things that actually sets this book apart is that, you know, we get a lot of pitches for things that don't have a rich third act like this. So again, so I think that's, I think that's really well done. So I would just try to like comb out some stuff out of the middle, make sure we just pay attention to things that we really do need. I question whether we need a couple things. I question whether we need this, I wrote this book as a love letter paragraph, and this is the first of two planned books. As much as I love that bit about, you know, why you love the people in the, in the places, I, I, it is word count that's just being used that is cluttering the page a little bit. So unless there's a way that we can weave it in into your author bio, I would just take that out as a paragraph. And then the first of two planned books, I would probably take that out as well, because, you know, again, you can have a conversation with an agent about this later on, of course, it's, you know, it's fine to be writing other things. But I really want to focus on this, this book. And again, because it's kind of long, I would probably just be focusing on this. It does kind of explain like the story of the other Camilla, because this is the one Camilla's and that's gonna be the other Camilla's. But I don't know, I still somehow think we need to really focus on selling this, this book itself. So those are all my notes. Feel free to, you know, come at me and ask me any questions.
3: I wondered about the adding the I had heard you guys say never say and this is part of my seven part series. So I wondered if you'd tell me to, to ditch the Campbell preamble. The reason I brought it in there, and now saying out loud, I realize I'm just to catch people's interests. But I wrote it specifically so it would line up with the same time period of Camilla being in Bahrain. So the phone conversations, and I'll repeat them in the next book. But but if I'm just trying to get your interest, then yeah, so I could ditch that, and I could I could absolutely come up with different words for boring. <laughs>
0: Was there anything in particular, you know, you you had notes on with my feedback? Is it single POV? It's single POV, right? Like we don't get the male POV? Right.
3: Yes. 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 So do I need to straight up say in there single POV? I
0: don't I don't think so necessarily. Yeah, I don't I don't think so. But but if it was dual, I would I would say that make sure you say it's dual.
3: Yeah. Okay. Yeah, no, definitely not. Not dual. And so you like the last part. And so I'll take up the... I was trying to... Vyekes isn't like a, another character in the book, but it's a big part of it. Do you think I can just say it? I don't need to talk about the, the sexy adventures they have.
0: I don't think so, because ultimately the pitch, we really have to focus on the high notes of the pitch here. And even though it's a character, so you say up here, it's like this time the identity swap on the island of is Puerto Rico, like right away, we are getting an island vibe. Do you know what I mean? Just by saying it's okay. an island. So sometimes we don't need to like okay. repeat it, repeat anything too many times in our query letter. Just one time is enough. You know, there is an element of understanding, I think just with even just saying, you know, it's an island, is Puerto Rico, that sort of thing.
3: Right. Do I need to put in there, it's also, it's a romance, but it's also her finding herself by being in another person's shoes. So she's, you know, straight laced and always follow the rules. And then she's put in the situation where she has no financial consequences. So, but she figures out she doesn't want to be the old cam, but she doesn't want to be Campbell either. Do I need to talk about her personal journey or is it enough just to, touch the romance part
0: i think the romance is the hook but i think that kind of answers my question about cam because when i said cam is the boring practical version right i think understanding a little bit more about cam because other than the fact that she you know she gets to swap lives we we don't fully understand until we kind of get to the pages which is like she's lost everything in terms of like her job and her boyfriend and everything like that but why she needs why she needs somewhere to stay that's obviously that's obviously really important um but yeah, I think understanding a little bit more about her is important. And I so when you swap out the boring practical stuff, I would I would talk about um some of those some of those reasons. Not don't dwell on them. Like again, try to try to just be really conscious of your word choice, economy of words, economy of space. And I would use the holiday swap as a nice kind of framework for focusing on what is the most interesting thing about this book. It's the swap. And it's the romance and it's this third act, I think, from what you're pitching me. So, like, that's what I would be focusing on. All right. We need to switch it over to our pages now. So, would you want to give our listeners a little rundown of what you wrote about?
3: You got it. All right. So chapter one starts with Cam walking down the street with her wonky old suitcase. Her boyfriend had dumped her. He owns the apartment. So he kicked her out. She shows up at work and the fashion house where she works is going under. So worst day ever. She's meeting her best friend Camilla at their this bar that's in a hotel, their place. She texts her and says, worst day ever. I want to tell you all about it. When they get there, they know the bellhop because this is their place. And so she's talking with the bell hop and they're watching Camilla. And Camilla's one of these people who's got that magic. Like people, the bartender always pays attention and the middle-aged men are giving up their seats for her. And so you sort of introduce Camilla through her eyes and they get their, their differences. So she walks over to Camilla and says and they've both had this terrible day. And, and Cam says, I have to tell about mine first. They do rock, paper, scissors. Cam wins. So she tells her about the day. Camilla is elated because she hated the boyfriend chance, And so she's trying to, you know, high five her and cheers her. And Campbell's saying, please stop. And so they talk a little bit about Cam's terrible day. And then she says, what happened to you, Camilla? Well, Camilla's father is this hotel magnate. He has said she has floated in the six years since college, not doing anything to support herself. And he says, you have to come to Vieques and run this boutique. It has to turn a profit or, you know, or you're done. I'm done with you. And Camilla in her self-centered way doesn't understand that this is the perfect dream job and her terrible day is not nearly as bad as Cam's. And so the five pages wrapping up with Cam saying, so the perfect job in paradise, what are you griping about?
0: All right. So one of the big themes here, especially in the opening pages, is, you know, fashion. She works at the fashion house, you know, the hotel boutique and, and everything like that. So we understand they're from a certain class and a certain world, which, which has such a personality to it. So one of the things that kind of I stumbled upon in the second paragraph was, you just say the fashion house where I worked. And then later on, I think you just call it the fashion house again. So when you say fashion house, like to me, that means like Louis Vuitton, Gucci, like we're talking like fashion house to me is like, a certain caliber of fashion and also we would name it you would you would know that your friend worked at Gucci you wouldn't you wouldn't say like the fashion house I don't think unless they're called like the fashion house is the name of the fashion house so I just felt like we're losing an opportunity there I think to get specific and and just kind of know a little bit more about exactly where she worked the other thing is if it is a fashion house meaning like somewhere high-end it would be so shocking to me that they would go under because all of these large fashion houses are now owned by conglomerates. So yeah, anyway, that just seemed a little my plausibility meter was just like, oh you know, doing a little like tick, tick, tick. <laughs> so that you know, gave me pause a little bit. But I really liked that right away. It's like we're getting into the friendship element, right? Like right away, it's like nine one one text. Got to connect with my friend, right? And so I, I like that you're moving things along because obviously the point is like let's let's get out of the situation and, and get to the hotel where where all the drama happens. So I think you're moving it along really well. So the next thing is you say so the bar is in a boutique hotel halfway between our Manhattan apartment. So tell me the neighborhoods. Manhattan is a really big place. So I would just really, again, like that specificity of, you know, what neighborhood are they in? Again, that will tell me something about them. You know, just just trying to narrow in on... All of those word choices can really add an extra layer of meaning, which I think is really important. Okay, so next, I so you had them describing what each other wears. And I normally I don't love that. But because this is, again, this fashion hook and this kind of explaining the type of class that they're in, I think that really worked. So I think that was totally fine. But again, you said on my feet were heels from my favorite store in Brooklyn. I would say what neighborhood in Brooklyn or what store? Again, an opportunity to get a little bit more specific there. Okay, and now we get to the breakup and how her best friend feels about her breakup. I think this is another opportunity to get really in depth about their relationship as best friends because if your best friend hated the guy you lived with, like that could cause a rift. There might be a lot of feelings there. I don't know whether it's like insecurity that, you know, you chose the wrong person or you're mad at your friend because she didn't like the guy or whether you really don't care about this guy that much, that you don't care whether your best friend bashes who you live with. So I felt that was a little bit of an oversimplification there. And I would just love to just really understand their friendship more. I don't care about the relationship, right? We don't care about the guy. What we care about is the friendship. So I would use that as an opportunity and a vehicle to kind of learn a bit more about your friendship. The other thing I was thinking is, why do we even need chance? can chance just not exist? Or does he come back? Because, again, the implausibility of her, you know, breaking up with her boyfriend, losing her job, like all of this stuff where she's like, oh, this is happening to me in one day. It's a lot for the reader to kind of understand. And again, plausibility, is this really all going to happen in one day? So I'm almost wondering, again, if chance doesn't come back, I almost think chance doesn't need to exist. Because there's so many other reasons that, again, her day could go wrong, or she could get kicked out of her apartment. Maybe, like, I don't know there's bed bugs and they're exterminating and her and her you know she has to be kicked out for a certain number of months or they're renovating her flat and you know again she has to be kicked out by the landlord for a certain number of months. I just think there's a lot of things that could get her out of her apartment and into her best friend's you know space and and obviously into this job. And he does nothing for me because that's kind of the point, right? He's like he's a bad boyfriend. So I would honestly just probably just cut him. Those
3: are kind of my main notes.
0: So I will turn it over to you and and you can ask me anything you like.
3: Chance does not come back except in the one I was trying to make the worst day ever. And you're right, that is that is a lot to swallow. It would happen in the real world. He is only represented later in when she's offered the fashion house job again, two-thirds of the way of the book. She thinks of now I'm the person Chance wanted me to be. I would be a financial success. I would have prestige So he doesn't actually come back just as an idea of chance. So I think I could drop him. The only thing I talk about her trying to, she's not sure who she is. And she was trying to mold herself into what chance wanted her to be. And that's a little bit of a personality, but if, you know, it's two paragraphs here. Mm and I'll it, it, touch on it I, I almost
0: think it could be like who her best friend wanted her to be like I just feel like these these two if you're trying to explain the the really tight bond these two have maybe it's not even like her boyfriend like she's trying to be the be the woman that her boyfriend wants her to be like maybe she wants to be the woman her best friend wants her to be right because her best friend like is of a certain class or you know has this rich family Um. so I think all, when, when in doubt here I would really pull it back to this friendship when in doubt you know just like make them the focal point because again I think that will just increase the intensity here and also just drive intrigue and into the next book if you're going to write a book about her. So, so that would be my note just yeah, I get rid of the dude.
3: <laughs> do it, okay, yeah, I can do that easily. Is it too much the is it too much to say college roommates who happen to find each other are almost exactly look alike? I didn't know how to get around it. That's the crux of it. I actually
0: I that was something that I didn't find implausible for some reason. I was like, that makes perfect sense to me. I don't know that part I was totally on board for I, I actually I follow this Instagram account where this photographer finds people in the world and finds their doppelgangers. And it could be like one person's in Brazil, one person's in Canada, one person's in, you know, Australia, one person's in Norway, or whatever. Anyway, and they find the people. And they and he photographs them together. Anyway, so for some reason, the doppelganger thing didn't didn't throw me off at all. It was it was the other things.
3: Okay, cool. My other question is, I went, I went with the, so they're twenty eight, and so for me, and I didn't live in New York, but I lived in Hoboken, which is right across the river. And for me, twenty eight was when I felt like a proper grown up. Is twenty eight? Is it plausible that the Camilla character would have been screwing around for six years after college and never actually employed? Do they feel twenty eight? Should I make them a little younger, a little older?
0: That's a really, that's a really good question. I think with enough money, you can yeah, you can mess around for a long time and not have a job as long as you have enough money to support that, that venture. So there's a lot of you know, man child characters out there who like don't grow up till they're 40. So you know, it didn't really bother me that she kind of jumps around, you know, careerless or anchorless for a while. You could make them 32. Honestly, in New York, people are, you know, single for a lot longer, you know, settle down later, that sort of thing. So you could move them into their 30s easily. I think it just depends on, you know, timelines and that sort of thing. I, I think that you could make them you could definitely make them older 20s. To me, so I'm 30, I'm 34. And so to me, 20s, 20s do seem young, like for but they're also like times where we can have lots of adventures and things like that. So I think knowing that they're going on a big adventure, but but being New York City, again, you could move up their age. And and I don't think that would affect it too much.
3: Okay. Is Camilla likable enough? Because I thought I wrote this one in the pandemic when I just couldn't stand looking at my four walls anymore. I needed to pretend I was in Vieques. But I also read it after Emily Giffen's Something Borrowed and then Something Blue. And it was kind of that relationship, but without the cheating and the frenemy stuff. And I want Camilla to be likable. And I want you to look at her and say, oh, she is a good person. Is she likable enough or is it two, is five pages not enough to know?
0: It's not enough to know. But also that worries me that I don't know the answer to that. Because I feel like I should kind of know within five pages a little bit more about her i think so that's why i think you know i pointed out those opportunities like you know how she feels about her friend hating her boyfriend like any opportunity you can i think to add some some layers in depth i would like to i would want to know more than i do know i think
3: okay so by ditching chance having it through camilla's eyes and more in the relationship you'd get a better flavor for who she is okay that makes sense Any, any last questions before we, we part? I can't think of a thing. We'll hang up and I'll have a hundred, but no, this was amazingly helpful. Thank you so much.
0: Yeah, you're welcome. So I'll email you over all of my notes. So you'll have those in front of you. I know it's um, overwhelming to get them all, you know, told to you. So you'll have them all in hand. And and yeah, I, I wish you the best of luck with this. I love that you spent your pandemic writing and so many other people did as well. And we'll have so many other listeners that, that can relate to that. That sense of escapism. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Thank you so much, Caroline.
3: Thank you.
1: Thank you. Thank you for joining us. All right. Well, second author joining us today is Sammy. Welcome, Sammy. Will you kick us off by reading your query letter?
4: Well, thanks so much for having me today. Dear Miss Lyra, I am seeking critique and representation for my first novel, The Unfortunate Life of Genevieve Ryder, a 95,000 word completed work of historical women's fiction. I've learned so much from you, Carly and Bianca during the Books with Hooks segment of The Shit No One Tells You About Writing and your generous advice on Instagram. I'm sending this query to you because of your love for flawed protagonists, secrets, and the dynamics of female friendship. In the vein of The Language of Flowers by... Vanessa Diffenbach, and Little Fires Everywhere by Celeste Ng. The Unfortunate Life of Genevieve Ryder is one woman's quest to live her life against the backdrop of the quiet desperation of the 1950s and has themes that will resonate with the modern reader. It's 1946, and 22-year-old Genevieve Ryder knows that the only way out from under her mother's domineering thumb is to get married. Bobby McFadden is her perfect match, but when Jen realizes she's pregnant and learns Bobby is engaged to someone else, the life she had planned is over. Forced to spend a year at Bethany House, a home for unwed mothers, Jen decides to keep her baby against the wishes of her mother. Forward-thinking staff and an unlikely friend empower Jen with the skills necessary to build her own life on her own terms. When her time at Bethany is over, Jen must forge a path for her and her daughter Catherine in a world that only wants women to keep house and raise babies for their doting husbands. Eventually, she meets and falls in love with Peter Young, but a single act of passion results in a secret that threatens to destroy the life she's fought to build. When I was growing up, I knew exactly two things about my maternal grandmother. Her last name was different than my mother's maiden name, and she divorced a man in the mid 1950s, someone who wasn't my mom's birth father, but the man she called dad. This novel is my attempt to understand how that happened. Beta readers have had emotional responses to the story. Professionally, I play games, organize chaos, and teach truth to middle and high school students as the youth director at my local church. Personally, story is the way I move through life. Currently, I live in Grand Rapids, Michigan with my husband, four teenagers, three cats, two turtles, and one overly friendly golden retriever. Thank you for your consideration. And at the bottom, there is a trigger warning for spousal abuse and abortion.
1: Thank you so much for reading that great query letter for us. Extra thank you for the content notes. It's so appreciated. Okay, so here are my notes. I want to start by saying that I just love Little Fires Everywhere. I know that everyone does because it became a TV show and it's so huge now, but I was a fan from day one and I just want to claim that because it's such a great novel. I love Celeste Ng. As we get to the plot paragraph, when I read A Single Act of Passion, I was thinking to myself, Like, that can mean hot sex or murder. And I kind of want to know which one, just because it really does change the story quite a bit. So, and, you know, building on that question, so far, other than the inciting incident, Genevieve's arc is internal. And so my advice to you is to do the movie trailer trick, which is essentially to, if you had to film a trailer for this, what scenes would you include after the inciting incident. And of course, you'd pick scenes that escalate the conflict, like the conflict that can be shot by a camera, not the conflict that exists in someone's head. And I'm a huge fan of interiority. So whenever I say this, it is not to suggest that you should cut the internal arc. Internal arcs are very important. But the query letter isn't telling me anything that happens plot-wise after the inciting incident. It is telling me things that are happening inside her own heart. The fact that she inhabits a world that has expectations of her that don't match her own. The fact that she makes decisions that don't fit with what people expect of her. So I am getting that. I also want to say that I really like the detail at the end where you said that this novel is your attempt to understand how that happened in your family. It's It's so interesting how something like a different name... Back in that generation, typically indicates scandal, you know, or at least a juicy secret. So I think that's that's really interesting and just says so much about our society. Recently, I interviewed Melissa Fu for the podcast, and her wonderful novel, Peach Blossom Spring, was also an attempt at finding out more about her father's life, because he wouldn't share anything with her. And I find that drawing from real life can be a really powerful starting point for historical fiction. So thank you for sharing that with us. That was really powerful. And of course, I have to very quickly say that I th- I loved the whole, you know, how many turtles do you have, and and cats, and, and dogs, and, and that's just amazing. So yes, thank you. I am all for a zoo at home. That sounds great. So yeah, any questions for me about that?
4: Thank you. I actually have two questions. So my concern was, so I had to pitch it as historical women's fiction, right? Because it's historically set. But I couldn't find any comp titles set in the 50s that are recent. And so I'm wondering, is it okay? And The Language of Flowers is a 10-year-old novel. Readers have matched those two books, my, my, my novel and that one together. Um, but I understand that it's a 10-year-old novel, and I can make the argument for Little Fires Everywhere, which is why I included it. But I'm not sure these are the strongest comps, and I don't know what to do because I have been looking So is it okay to use a modern comp against a historically set book?
1: It would be tricky. It's okay if you must. Like everything's okay as long as I can see how the comp would be delivering on something. And as long as I see how your book is similar to that. But it would be hard for me to see that with a modern book. So I wouldn't worry too much about the time period being exactly the same. I would worry more about the structure of the novel and the writing and, you know, the characters or whatever else. Because if you were to tell me this is like the Nightingale, but set in the Gilded Age, I understand what that means, even though they're two completely different time periods, right? Like World War II and the 1920s, I don't even know, but like two different time periods. So, so I, would, I would focus more on that than on the exact time period. I get your concern about the comps being old. Modern comps are ideal. I will say that I got the Little Fires Everywhere comparison, because we're talking, like, I understood what you meant by that, because we are discussing adoption, we are discussing a a familial structure. And then I kept wondering, like, who is the outsider that comes in? Because that is very much what drives that book forward. And I didn't get that in yours. But I did have a question about it, which is not a bad thing. So yeah.
4: One other question that comes out of this is, is my title okay? Uh, So the the book and we don't know this by the, the this or by the five pages but it covers like a 25 year period so in terms of the arc it fits but i'm i'm afraid that that title is a turn off
1: don't love the title i think the title is a little bit of a downer like the unfortunate life of genevieve like it's just people don't want depressing books right now they want uplifting at least, at least towards the end, like hopefully more than that. So I, I just don't love the title. Like it's – being very honest here, it's a little generic, like The Unfortunate Life of. It could be anyone's name after that. So I don't know. I would pick a different title. Yeah. Okay. I okay. like that. So would you please give us an overview of what happens on your first five pages?
4: All right. Well – First, we open with a time and date stamp and a place stamp. It is November 1946 in Medford, Wisconsin. And we open with 22-year-old Genevieve Ryder daydreaming out of the window, dreaming about getting married and marrying a very specific person, Bobby McFadden, but that those daydreams are interrupted by the screech of her mother calling her to help set the table for dinner. And all through this, we're getting little clues that something isn't quite quite right Genevieve's mom Antoinette is very angry and very upset as they're setting the table we see the sister they are conversing back and forth and we are just getting a sense that Genevieve understands that she's a disappointment and Antoinette is very upset at her for everything she did and Marie's just trying to be supportive and as we go through dinner we start to hear that there's this pressure that tonight Genevieve has to be perfect so the McFadden's will accept her. And from that we go into a the only flashback of the entire story where she remembers coming downstairs after being sick for a couple weeks and meeting her parents in front of the fire in their rocking chairs where she then tells them that she doesn't actually have the flu, but that she's pregnant and that Bobby is the father. And she's like, okay, so I'm going to use this as a way to get married. And um, her parents are incredibly disappointed and show their disappointment in different kinds of ways. And she... Uh, realizes that her plan is ruined. Everything is ruined. Her life is ruined. And we come back to the dinner table where Antoinette ends it by saying that uh, everything has to go perfect tonight. And we end this five pages with them welcoming Bobby and his parents to the door and welcoming them in for coffee that night.
1: Okay. Thank you for summarizing that for us. You did such a good job. Question before I begin my notes. You mentioned the only flashback, like your entire novel only has one flashback? Correct. Are- one flashback. Okay. Okay. In that case, Sammy, and Sammy, are you a listener of the podcast? Yes, I am. Okay, Sammy, I'm, then I'm going to be really hard on you. I'm Remove not. the flashback. Oh, oh, <clears throat> You have to remove the flashback. Like, I am so sorry, but you know this, it is a golden rule, no flashbacks on the first 5 pages. And if you must have it, why are you writing it in italics? It just totally took me out of the scene. It was jarring. It just no. I don't I don't think you need it. I don't think the flashback is adding anything other than detail. Detail is appreciated, but it's not needed in the first 5 pages. Cut. Cut, be ruthless about it. I am promising you your story will be stronger for it. Okay, so that is my first note. I will go through all my notes and then you can give me your comments. So as I was reading this, I thought to myself first and foremost, like, oh my gosh, I'm gonna get a scene where she's daydreaming and it's gonna be so slow and boring, but that did not happen. Right away, her mom interrupted her. So great job on that. Like great job making sure that there's disruption right on the first page. And that we get, we do get those clues that, you know, make us wonder what's going on. And then we do get lots of answers, which keep us turning the pages. So excellent job framing that. I wanted to know, does she have other siblings? Because there's a line that says, no one could measure up to her mother's exacting standards, except Marie, the golden child. And I'm thinking there's only two girls because I didn't hear about any other siblings. So if there's only two girls, just be like, I don't like not I because it's not first person. But, you know, Jen doesn't live up to her mother's exacting standards. And has she ever wondered why? Like, why would her mom treat the other one so different? She probably has theories. She probably has specific insecurities. Um, As she was daydreaming, same page, you know. Genevieve couldn't help but think that she looked, she is her mom, like the simple farmer's wife she was, and that Jen never wanted to be. So the way children, teenagers, young adults, honestly, the way anyone, any human, but especially younger people work, is that when they think of their future, they try to fit it into possible templates, whether they heard about it in a movie, whether they heard about it in a book, whether they heard about it because she has an aunt who is an in-town wife. Where is she getting this inspiration? Who exactly does she want to be? Who does she admire? Who does she look up to? I love that you have her, let's just face it, looking down on her mom and being like, I don't want your life. I love that. That's believable. That's, that tells me a lot about her character that moves the story forward that promises me that probably she will end up having a different life, but not in the way that she's expecting. It's great. But then who is she modeling her ideal life on? I need to know that. On the theme of her being more sophisticated, so she does set the table incorrectly, And then her mom corrects her. So I thought that doesn't add up, right? Like if she is more sophisticated, if she does pay attention to the fancy families or whatever, then maybe she could be setting the table in the more modern fashion, how people are doing it now. And then her mom could be like, that's not how you do it because her mom is so old fashioned. So I think that would be more realistic and would develop the the theme, like I said. I'm not going to talk about the flashback again because we already covered that. But yeah, remove it. Seriously, just cut it. Guillotine, like off with their head, off with the flashback. So another thing I noticed is that you have this tendency to ask questions, to have her interiority asking, repeating what was already said in question form. So Bobby was engaged so soon to Susie. We know that he's engaged to Susie. Dialogue was covering that better could it even be better it slows down the pace pregnant she was pregnant it slows down the pace we already know you're just having her repeating it cut 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 this is where you must be ruthless with your own work so that we can pick up the pace i also had questions about the authenticity of the language so this is historical fiction would would people say pregnant didn't they say with child back then i don't actually know the answer to this but i would look it up because i don't think people said pregnant in 1946 could be wrong Another thing, she says, I'm pregnant and it's Bobby's. I don't think she would specify that. It's 1946. The fact that she slept with one dude is scandalous enough. Would she tell her parents, don't worry, it's not Joe the Milkman's, you know, it's, I don't think she would do that. I think she would, she would just say, I'm pregnant. And then, you know, her dad would be like, I'm going to kill this Bobby guy. I also wanted more clues about the plan. And I have, towards the end, you have dialogue, but I dialogue said by different people, it's all in one, one paragraph. Like we're not getting a new paragraph per, per line that's being said. And in books, that's how it works. So I wouldn't do that just because it just, it creates a little bit of confusion. Like I didn't know who was speaking. This is the very last paragraph because I can see you frowning and you're like, where is this? Maybe I misread it. My, my big picture note, and I will close with my big picture note, which I think I've supported with these minor line notes. Um, Is that her interiority right now seems generic her one thought is she wants a different kind of life than her mom and to achieve this she needs Bobby to marry her because she is pregnant now of course I understand that that's where her thoughts would be I get how that's what she would be thinking of of course she wouldn't be thinking of anything else that does make sense but in order for the reader to connect with her interiority um, to the interiority of any protagonist, really, they need specificity. And it can't be thoughts that anyone would be having in that moment. Um, they need to be really specific to her. Like I said, for example, whose life does she long for? An aunt, her friend's mom, um, her best friend from school who has the perfect life and who lives in the better house. I don't know. When we, we could really get some sharp specifics on that. Also, was there a girl? Probably there was who already got pregnant and who was already disgraced in town. Like, you know how towns have like lore, like this happened to so-and-so and she was disgraced. You know, this happened to XYZ person and she had to marry, you know, and she's miserable and that's not going to happen to me. Like I want her interiority to have more specificity because without that, I can tell it's a draft, which is okay. Cause that's, that's why we're here for it. We're here to critique drafts to make everything even stronger assuming the notes resonate with you. So now I will stop talking and it's your turn to ask questions.
0: First thing I want to say is that, Sammy, I'm here for moral support. Cece was so hard on you and, and I'm I'm here for you, Sammy. I'm here for you.
4: <laughs> thank you. So I only came to you because I, I need this. I'm at the space where I can't make it better without other people telling me how to make it better. So thank you. I won't cry too much. No, I'm not going to cry at all. Don't cry at all. I'm
1: not gonna cry at all. Oh my I'm gosh, gonna, I'm gonna make someone cry.
4: No, you're not gonna no. make me cry.
1: I'm gonna cry with you then. We can cry together. We can have a crying. Okay. We can have a crying circle.
4: Okay. So my first thing would be, okay, so so clearly the novel originally did not start in this space, right? Like I cut at least 10,000 words from the beginning to have it start right here. Right. And that flashback was the only thing that I felt had to be in, but I don't want to back it up because there's not enough tension to start at that spot. Right. There's just, it's the, the tension is here. And so I'm, so is that stuff that sets scenes about who those parents are and that relationship there without that flashback, I'd we can't go back to that moment in any other way. Does that mean we, we really don't need that moment? We really don't need her coming downstairs and doing that, that conversation with her family in that okay. way?
1: Excellent question. Really proud that you cut those 10,000 words. I think you're starting in the right place. This is exactly where you want to start. And like I said, you're framing it really well because you have this promise of a girl daydreaming, dreaming and then it's like, bam, reality with disruption. So that's excellent. Um, I don't think we need to see it at all at all it did not you did such a good job of telling me that she was pregnant without telling me that she was pregnant her mom looking at her waist do you know what i'm saying like her saying you've made a mess of your life or i don't remember the exact line but it is so subtle and so clear that i don't need that flashback if you're concerned about whether the parents interaction is important then maybe there could be an interaction happening right now as she sets the table i don't know like it doesn't, I, I don't think that you need that specific scene to show a family's dynamics. And if you do, if you must, put it in later. Like do not flashback in the first five pages. I'm not opposed to flashbacks later, just not in the first five pages and especially not with italics because then you're, you're telling my eyes, right? Like I remember our eyes read hundreds of pages every day. Like you're telling my eyes, oh, the scene that you just started getting invested in, we're gonna go to another one. And I know it seems silly, but because we do read so much stuff, and especially because honestly, Sammy, you don't need it. it's strong as is I'm trying to think if there was anything about the way that I do think that you know finding out that he's he's engaged was a blow, but finding out that she was pregnant was a blow, and we didn't see that we didn't see her find out that she was with child so so it's fine, like you've done a good job establishing it, okay,
4: and I was. Actually, when I was doing these five pages, I was disappointed that that was there because the next couple of pages with the interaction with Bobby and his parents and the setup and like the whole rest of the setup is so great that I wish you could have read that too. Anyway. I've had a difficult time figuring out authenticity of language, figuring out how exactly there are certain things, even as we talk about in later chapters, as we talk about like furniture, how we talk about furniture or how we talk about clothes. That has been a challenge that I didn't expect as much. And if I could set it forward into a modern era, I would do that. But the story just doesn't work in a modern era.
1: It wouldn't make sense. No, Mm -mm. because nobody – like, yeah. No, you you need the social construct of that time. Yeah. I think it's honestly just about research. Like, get nonfiction books, watch documentaries. This is 46? Uh, I wonder if –
4: Starts in 46.
1: Are there any TV shows set in 46? Like – I don't know. We, we look those up like documentaries, nonfiction. I, I remember an author once telling me that she read memoirs written by people who were alive at that time, just to, to get the sense of the language, you know, stuff that was published a billion years ago, essentially. (laughs) So that, that could also work even newspapers, clippings from that time. Like this is where you put your researcher hat on and, and really lean into authenticity. If you get beta readers who also understand the time period, like I feel like your ideal beta reader would be a historian or something. That would also be kind of gold and kind of amazing. It's harder to find, but, but yeah, it's about research.
4: These are all great things. I'm pleased that with the exception of the flashback that the pace is good and right. I worked really hard to trust the reader to put it all together without spelling it out for them. And I try to do that throughout the rest of things. So the fact that you caught that makes me feel warm and fuzzy inside. So yeah, this has been really, really helpful.
1: You did a great job with the pace and even the flashback, it's still really well written. You just don't need it like you said, you were trusting the reader. You, you are trusting the reader in your pages. And so trust them to also get it without the flashback. That's what I would say. But like, you know, like we always say in the podcast, there's one God in this world. The God is you because you created it. And so if you want to keep the flashback, by all means, do it. I promise you, you don't need it. I promise.
4: The last question I would ask is, is there enough emotionality in it?
1: Yes. I had no emotionality notes and I always do. I'm always like, what is she feeling, and can we get a better scent? I had none of these. Like, you'll you'll get my notes once Bianca sends those off, because you'll get to see like specific line notes, specific highlights, all the stuff I loved, because I highlight that too. We just don't spend that much time on compliments, not because we're mean. I promise, but because what what is that adding, right? Like, you 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 need to know the stuff that I feel could become even better. But yeah, I had I had zero, like actually zero comments on her emotionality. So you did a really good job.
4: I guess, I don't know. How far away is this from being ready?
1: 37.8. Perfect. No, that was a joke. <laughs> <laughs> when people ask me this, what I always I say is, "There's this isn't a thermometer. I can't tell right. you where the water's going to boil. Like it's not right. like, and so I always answer a random number. <laughs> I
4: understand. I understand. <laughs> because... That's not a fair, it's, it's also not a fair question, right? I understand like, that. Like,
1: I can definitely tell you that if it weren't for the flashback, I would be like, this is almost near perfect because every story I read, including published stories, I can go, oh, what's happening here? Could we get more of this? Like, If you think about it, you have one other than the flashback, you have one note, which is specify her interiority. Yes, the language thing, but you can do a pass for that at the end. you know one thing this is this is layering work you don't have to do it all the first time around like do one edits for interiority then do one edit if you want to maybe you want to do a different way but like I don't think that you should try to tackle it all (laughs) because you'll have to wear so many different hats if you do that so maybe you have a great chapeau collection but I I think that sounds like too much thank
4: you I appreciate it so much
0: welcome, welcome, welcome. You have Carly here to tell you about our upcoming The Shit No One Tells You About Writing virtual retreat. It is on September 24th and 25th, and we are so excited to bring this back to you guys again. We did it in January. We had an absolute blast and got such amazing feedback that we were so excited to be able to put together another amazing weekend. We have 18 hours of jam-packed content. We have 13 speakers. It's such an amazing, inspiring, and just community-building event um, filled with so many learning opportunities. opportunities from authors, editors, and various speakers around the industry. We can't wait to see you guys there. Check out more on our website and we will see you soon.
1: Hi everyone. It's Cece. Question. What's the biggest difference between a book and a movie? If you listen to the podcast, you already know the answer. It's not that movies have things like special effects or soundtracks or even actors at their disposal. It's that books allow us to be inside someone's head to experience their inner lives, which is why the ability to write a character's interiority is so important. With that in mind, I've developed a webinar called Writing Interiority, Revealing Your Character's Inner Life. Join me on August 18th via Zoom to learn all about the foundation and functions of interiority, including how to leverage interiority into plot points. We'll cover techniques on how to effectively convey a character's inner life in a way that keeps the reader turning the pages of the story with lots of examples from some amazing books. And of course, we'll have time for a Q&A writers of all genres are invited to attend as knowing how to write interiority is a superpower useful for all storytellers for information on how to register please head over to my instagram or twitter page click on the link in my bio and follow the instructions and don't worry if you're busy on august 18th register anyway because the class will be recorded and a recording will be sent to everyone 24 hours later. I hope to see you there.
0: rosettastone.com slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off
2: at rosettastone.com slash today, today. Are you looking for beta readers, some of whom might potentially become writing group members down the line? Are you wanting to be matched up with those writing in a similar genre or time zone so they can critique your work as you critique theirs at the same time? Your manuscript doesn't have to be complete to sign up for this 3,000 word evaluation. This particular matchup will be open to registrations from now until the 2nd of June, with the matchup emails going out on the 3rd of June. For more information and to register, go to biancamaray.com, look for the Beta Reader Matchup page, and please, spread the word. The more writers we have signed up, the better the matches will be. Today's guest is the New York Times best-selling author of six novels, most recently Home Before Dark and Survive the Night. His first novel, Final Girls, has been published in 30 countries and won the ITW Thriller Award for Best Hardcover Novel. His latest book, The House Across the Lake, has just been released by Dutton Books. A native of Pennsylvania, he now lives in Princeton, New Jersey. It's my absolute pleasure to welcome Riley Sager. Riley Sager. Kylie, welcome to the show. Hello, thanks for having me. It's wonderful to chat to you. I have been a huge fan of your work since I read The Final Girls, and I actually just want to touch on that before we dive into our discussion of The House Across the Lake, which I also absolutely loved. So a question we get a lot on the podcast from emerging writers is the one surrounding pen names and the use thereof. Now, for our listeners, Riley's real name is Todd Ritter. He wrote three books under that name before trying a pen name for the first time in twenty. 2014 which was then Alan Finn and then in 2017 he chose Riley Sager for the final girls and this really launched his career in terms of sales not just critical acclaim. And for our listeners, it's incredibly sad that these two things are considered separate things. You can have huge critical acclaim and not be very successful when it comes to sales. So Riley, could you take us through the thinking that you made there? Because to me, it's a very savvy move. And on this podcast, we are all about savvy moves.
5: Yeah, the name thing I get asked a lot and it's very complicated and there's a lot of different nuances involved that the average reader just doesn't understand or can wrap their heads around. And so for me, it was like three books under my real name and they just they did not sell they it and it happens, you know, and, and so when it came time to like I could have written another book for my publisher at the time and i thought why bother like it's it's so much work and it's going to be the same amount of crappy sales and so i think i need to do something different and so i wrote a historical supernatural mystery that i loved the whole process i loved everything about it and i was like oh this is this is my new turn this is my career now and i'm so excited the publisher basically killed it like it's it's such a it's yeah, it's it's one of these weird things where like they waited more than a year to like publish it. My, I had trouble with my editor and they dumped the book on like December 30th with zero publicity. They didn't even send out review copies. So like they, they just literally killed this book. And so already my first pen name was just dead in the water before the book even came out. And so I wrote Final Girls as like this Hail Mary. It was like, this is my last ditch attempt at a writing career. And I think the desperation and anger shows in that book. And so my agent read it and she said, this is the best thing you've done so far. We need to use another pen name. And I was very reluctant. I said, I really want my name on this book. I'm so proud of this book. And she laid it out for me. She's like, okay, here's what's going to happen. We submit this book to editors under your real name. The first thing they're going to do is look at your previous sales, which were shitty. And she she does not mess around. She was not messing around. And she's like, and so what's going to happen is you will get a shitty advance. They're going to slap a shitty cover on it. And then they're going to dump it into the market with no publicity. And you will be exactly where you are right now. And I knew that she was right. And so that's when I was like, okay, Riley Sager was born, basically.
2: And, and that is genius. Because as an author as well, you know, my debut did okay. My second book tanked. Because the editor who bought it left the publishing house. Then I got another editor who was wonderful. She was lovely. But it's not the same as you loving that book and you're acquiring that book. So that book did dismally. And when, you know, and then I decided to pivot in terms of writing contemporary fantasy as opposed to literary fiction. And that's the first thing publishers did was they went and looked at the sales of my previous books. And then they were like, okay, well, at least you've changed genres, so there's that kind of thing. And for our listeners, if you watch Friends, writing is all about pivot pivot because you you just have to you got to change different genres change names whatever is going to get the books out in front of a new audience so my question riley is if you guys went out on submission with the new name at what point did the publisher then know that you were xyz who Z who'd published this at what point did they need to know that information
5: after they made an offer and that was where my agent was just brilliant she 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 had the idea of like, okay, we're just going to submit this blind. I'm not saying – they have to base their decision on the book and not you. And she said, it's a pen name and you will hear nothing from me unless you're interested in making an offer. And I just thought that was great because they did truly have to judge the book on the on its merits. And that's why when Dutton Books really, really wanted it, that's when I knew. I'm like, okay, they – don't know anything about me they just truly love this book and so i knew that was the right home for me
2: and it's so sad because that's how book sales should work it should be this is an amazing book we want this book we're going to get it out But, you know, for our listeners, keep in mind, it is a business for publishers and you're only as good as your last book and track record is important. So these are all things to consider. Of course, I think they managed to keep it secret for a little bit in terms of your readers, Riley, because I think even on the flap copy, I remember when I read that book, there weren't even pronouns. So and there wasn't a picture and I thought, oh, this is a woman writer. How long until you guys were kind of forced to say, okay, this is who the writer is?
5: Well, and, and in hindsight, that was a total mistake. Like, I do think my publisher's intentions at the time were very, they wanted people to respond to the book the way they responded to the book. And when we we're having publicity conversations months before the book came out, they said the book is going to be the focus, not you. And I, I appreciated that. But at the same time, when you have a pen name involved people's first response is, oh, who is it? And what are they hiding? And in this case, it really seemed like a, the wrong thing to do because there were people at the time who, who were coming out and saying, oh, he's just pretending to be a woman to fool us into buying this book. And that wasn't quite the case, but it, I could see why people would think that. And so before the book even came out, I think like the week of release, I took part in a Wall Street Journal article about male writers writing psychological thrillers under gender-neutral pen names and I was they they you know there was a photo shoot they took my picture and so like for a little bit I became the face of <laughs> men pretending to be women to fool women readers into buying their books and it was like it was not a good time and so if we could go back in time 5 years I would be like you know what? Let's not do this. Let's just be as forthcoming as possible because you, you never want to be seen as trying to trick readers or being shady or secretive. And I think in some cases, like most people, you know, know my deal. They like my books, but I do think that there's still some residual animosity about that.
2: And, yeah, I mean, that's that's a huge pity for me. I didn't care whether it was a man or a woman who wrote the book. I loved the book. For me, I love a mystery. So for me, it was like, oh, they're not using pronouns. Who is this person? Then And then wanting to dig deeper and find out purely to solve the mystery because, you know, that's the way my brain works. But certainly, yes, I could see how that might come back to bite you in the butt. And, you know, hindsight is an exact science. Um, you only figure out through experimentation what worked, what didn't. I think issues like the AJ Finn sort of Mallory thing didn't help when it came to writers using pen names because that kind of muddied the waters. But anyway, thank you so much for telling us all about this. All things for our listeners to keep in mind. And honestly, this is a question we get a ton. So you've really helped demystify that. And I really, really appreciate that. Okay, so what I would like to chat about firstly is setting. The kind of settings you do phenomenally well is kind of remote settings where people are isolated. And even if it happens in the city, they're in a place that isolates them, etc. And I often speak about setting as character. And you do that phenomenally well. You did that with the final girls and you've done that now with the house across the lake. Can you explain to us the appeal of that kind of setting for you and how you go about bringing a place alive? Well, in in this case...
5: I, d- I do agree that like setting is as important as character because I, I love a good setting and sometimes, you know, it takes some work and you have to, okay, what are the good characteristics of this place for maximum suspense and what makes it creepy? What makes it interesting? And it, it helps that with the house across the lake, I based it on a lake and a lake house that I spent some time in and it's where I got the idea for the book. And so I had a little bit of help because I got the idea while I was on vacation in Vermont and I spent that whole week sitting like Casey does in the book on the porch in a rocking chair, looking out over the water. So it was very easy for me to be like, oh yeah, I'm right here. Like I just described this basically. I did, you know, change things around to make it creepier. Like the lake I was on slightly bigger, had a lot more houses And so I decided to like, okay, I want just a few houses. I want the water to be really deep and really dark. And I want it to be very, very isolated. So it it just, it's fun to come up with a place and then think about all the different ways you can shape it to build maximum suspense.
2: I love that approach to it because it did. There's like this claustrophobic kind of feel, even though there's very few people and and because they're isolated. But you did amp up the creepiness. And it makes me laugh how we as writers can't even go on vacation without our brains stopping with all this shit. It's just like we're in a perfectly lovely house and we're like, what happens if a murder happened in this house and whatever? So now, Riley, time to come clean. Did you pick up binoculars and spy on the neighbors?
5: No, because I didn't think to bring any. But I did search the lake house because it was a rental. And so like literally because I sat down and I looked like there's this one house across the lake in particular that was beautiful and it was all lit up. And I just immediately like leaned in and thought, who lives there? What are they hiding? What is their life like? And I did search the lake house for binoculars. For future
2: vacations, you're going to be a bit smarter about bringing the, the binoculars. I know people in downtown Toronto who've got telescopes you know in their high-rise apartments and you visit and you go oh, I didn't know you were into stargazing and they're like what stargazing no uh, so you could just imagine what they what they're using the telescopes for so it's, it's pretty funny okay so I also want to discuss telling versus showing, especially when it comes to the thriller genre. So for our listeners, you send in your query letters and our agents, Carly and Cece, critique them and they critique your opening pages. And something that often comes up is we're saying you need to show more, tell less. There's a place in a novel for telling, but about 30 percent of your novel should be telling and the rest should be showing. But it's so important in the thriller genre because... Something that Riley does really well is that we get shown these scenarios and he leaves it open to interpretation as to what we think is happening. And then we get an understanding of what the character thinks is happening. And it creates this tension between the reader and the book. Because not only do we have tension between what the main character Casey is interpreting, we have tension with what we think is happening because we are not being told what's happening we're being shown it and and then it's up to us to try and figure it out so riley can you tell us a bit about that in terms of how you approach those kinds of scenes
5: yeah it's it's something i still struggle with that i it's it's kind of the one thing i wish i was better at is doing the showing and the not telling because in all of my books there is like a couple points where i just have to be like okay I'm I'm going to literally just sit here and tell you what's going on so far because it just, you need to do it sometimes to just bring the plot forward. But with The House Across the Lake, I didn't quite know how to begin it. And so after it was finished, my editor requested a prologue just to establish that we're on a lake, we're at a lake house, and that... The main character has been watching the house across the lake and i it was fun to write because i got to be kind of creepy and i think the the opening line of the book is the lake is darker than a coffin with the lid shut and so that's a line that you can come up with after having written the complete rest of the book but the the first real chapter per se is you know casey is sitting there there is a detective sitting across from her and she says you know Through the conversation, like you understand, okay, there is a woman who's missing. Her husband is this you know, kind of the prime suspect, and he's no longer at the house, and there's a storm coming, and I just kind of throw you in there and don't explain things, and then end this first chapter with Casey going upstairs and the prime suspect is tied up in her bed. And she says, What did you do with Catherine? And that was such I was very proud of myself when I came up with that because you don't know really you know what the situation is but you really do not know what the situation is and that was that's the fun thing to do is to to kind of just give the reader tidbits of information and kind of make them figure it out for themselves a little bit
2: yeah. And there were parts that, you know, Casey was interpreting things in certain ways and I was going, mm, hold on, I wonder if it isn't this. And then you start getting frustrated with the character. You're like, why are you so fixated on this one thing? Why haven't you noticed this? Perhaps it's this, etc." So that's a wonderful tension to build in between the writer and the character, the reader, the character, the book. So it's multi-tensional in so many different ways, which is what keeps readers, you know, turning pages and, 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 what Riley's saying is in the opening scene there's the detective and Casey's just happily lying. Casey even says, you can check my house if you want to. What, don't you believe me? Do you want to check my house? And the cop like looks at her and is like, no, that's fine. That's not necessary. And then Casey goes up and there is the person in the house and you're like, ballsy move, Casey. But yeah, really, really lovely with that. In terms of that prologue, so we often on the show, our agents say to people, don't put in prologues because people use prologues that don't do heavy lifting, whereas I agree with your editor, this book needed that prologue. And as well, what you've done here, Riley, is you haven't necessarily done a complete dual timeline narrative where the past and the present gets equal play. We are mostly in the past, and then we have these sort of vignettes, these little flashbacks to the present to kind of move the past story forward. How did you decide on that balance?
5: Well, I, I, going in this, this book, because there was so much that needed to be so much table setting, so to speak, in the beginning, like just the layout of the lake, the layout of the houses, like where they are in position to each other, who lives there, what they do. And so I knew it was going to be a while before Catherine disappeared. So like the the technically the inciting incident of the book I knew might be like past page 100, which you really shouldn't do. And so I knew that there had to be ways to keep the tension going. And so that's when I thought of like the before and after structure and to just show you glimpses of things that are happening later to just tantalizing, suspenseful things. And then, you know, bring it over where the before becomes now and, and the after. And so it just, it was a lot of fun to like mess around with the timeline and do that kind of, I love it when TV shows do that, where they just give you a hint of, oh, and by the way, two weeks later, this is the situation. And you're like, how did they get to that situation? And it's, it's a great, great trick to use. And I, I encourage all suspense writers to like mess around with like timelines.
2: Yeah, it was especially effective here. And in terms of the unreliable narrator, You know, what makes them, I have a theory that what makes unreliable narrators so unappealing is that we are all the unreliable narrators of our own lives. You know, I have a joke with my husband that when he starts to use the passive voice, I know he's being an unreliable narrator. So he will say the chicken is not cooked as opposed to I did not cook the chicken. Whatever. So so the minute you use that passive voice, you're like, oh, you're avoiding the subject of the sentence. So what are you hiding from me? So, you know, what, what do you think makes an unreliable narrator so interesting in stories?
5: Well, you're right. We are all like unreliable narrators in our own way. And it's such a common trope now in, in books, especially psychological thrillers that in some ways, you know, I'm always reluctant to do it. Like with with Casey, you had to do it. And I I don't, she is unreliable, but she's not lying to you necessarily. She's just sometimes ignoring the truth. And so I do think that's, you know, interesting. Some narrators just flat out will be like, tell the, tell the reader something that's completely untrue. In Casey's case, she's just skipping over some very vital information. And that made it a little bit more interesting and and fun for me. Like, I don't know if I would ever fully go into the unreliable narrator, I am Amy Dunn from Gone Girl, completely lying to you, the reader, about literally everything. I I don't think I would would do that. But it, it works very well in some cases for other writers.
2: Yeah, no, it was subtly done, and it was lovely. And just on something you said earlier, you know, you said your inciting incident came like a 100 pages in. For our listeners who are going, Bianca, you keep telling us the inciting incident needs to be in the first three chapters. Here's the thing. Riley actually had two inciting incidents, which... Because remember, at the beginning of the story, we need to answer the why now, why today question. Why is the story beginning now? Why is it not beginning later? So, yes, the true inciting incident is Catherine's disappearance, But we have a mini inciting incident when Casey is sent by her mother to go live at the house because of things that she has done and her mother's concerned about her. I don't want to give those things away. But, you know, that answers the why now, why today question so that Casey is there when Catherine goes missing. So if you're going to make your big inciting incident come later, you still need a smaller inciting incident to explain to us why the story begins when it does. Riley our time is up it's been such a joy chatting with you thank you so so much for joining us for our listeners you must read the house across the lake we will link to it on our bookshop.org affiliate page just a masterclass in maintaining suspense and tension and you know in terms of these kind of morally ambiguous characters and it, it just really keeps you turning pages we wish you much luck with it Riley and hope to have you back for the next one
5: Definitely. Thank you. This was so much fun. I love talking about shit no one tells other writers.
2: And that's it for today's episode. I hope you'll join us for next week's show. In the meantime, keep at it. Remember, it just takes one yes. Did you
0: know that 70% of all books are sold online via e-commerce? If you're an author wondering how you can get some of that market share, this is for you. Hi, I'm your co-host, Carly Waters, and I'm here to tell you how writers can work on their author brand to build an audience and convert those followers into book buyers. Everything that will change the course of your writing career, go to carlywaters.com slash course to learn more and use discount code POD15 for the month of April at checkout. That's POD15 P O at checkout over at carlywaters.com slash
2: course. Calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup
0: Did you know that 70% of all books are sold online via e-commerce? If you're an author wondering how you can get some of that market share, this is for you. Hi, I'm your co-host, Carly Waters, and I'm here to tell you how writers can work on their author brand to build an audience and convert those followers into book buyers. Everything that will change the course of your writing career, go to carlywaters.com slash course to learn more and use discount code POD15 for the month of April at checkout. That's POD15 P O at checkout over at carlywaters.com slash course.
2: Calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup